On this Sunday after Thanksgiving, there's a little bit of transition going on. I I think it's an appropriate Sunday for us to take a a little bit of a break from the book of Revelation, where we are there in chapter 19, and and to focus this morning upon the the holiness of God. And so before we worship, I want to read the preaching text to you for the day. So if you take out your Bibles, you can read along with this Psalm chapter 99. We'll use this as our call to worship and just to prepare our own hearts for worship this morning, to worship God in His holiness. Psalm chapter 99, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Well, it's not difficult to pick up that the subject of this psalm is the holiness of God. And it's a very quiet, contemplative psalm. It's one of those that's intended with every line to make you pause and meditate, to pause and revel in the greatness that's on display. And in this morning's message, we're going to be contemplating the holiness of God in three parts, primarily because the text is broken down into three parts. Three different times in Psalm 99, we see a chorus of holy is our God. Verse 3, verse 5, and then again at the end of the psalm. Verse 3, holy is He. Verse 5, holy is He. And then again at the end of the psalm. For the Lord our God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God. You know, God never upholds one of his attributes above the other. There's no one that is more valuable or more defining of him than any of the others. But it is unique that God's holiness is the only one that throughout Scripture is is spoken of three times in triplicate. Holy, holy, holy. Thinking about the angels in Isaiah chapter 6. Thinking about the four living creatures in Revelation 4 and 5. Holy, holy, holy. Holiness is is not superior to any other attribute, but it is all-encompassing. What I mean by that is when we talk about God's other attributes, they're always a holy attribute. So when we talk about God's righteousness, His righteousness is a holy righteousness. When we talk about His, His wrath, it's a holy wrath. When we talk about His mercy, it's a holy mercy. His love, it's a holy love. But what is holiness? 
Because it's obviously something here in this very methodical, contemplative, quiet psalm that the psalmist here is thinking deeply about. Well, I think this psalm is helpful because there's no way to capture everything that goes into God's holiness. Not even Dr. Mahoney's sermon was able to capture everything. But this text does capture, identify three components of God's holiness that we're going to look at together this morning. God's holiness is his majesty, it's his righteousness, and it's his grace. This is not the final definitive word to be said on God's holiness, but this is what this psalmist here is focusing upon. God's holiness is his majesty. It is his righteousness. It is his grace. And just as the psalmist here is not rushing through, singing holy, 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 and he's pausing to think about what is this holiness we're speaking of. The holiness of God was on display in the heart of the psalmist. And the psalmist is contemplating, you know, if, if I really believe God is who he is, well, what does that mean? And he gives us three different things in this psalm to think about. And how does that apply to my life? That's what we've just sung. I find it true in my own heart, probably for you as well, I love singing the song, Holy, 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 and I can sing it without even thinking about it. We could have stopped with that first song and said, there's our theme for the day, let's move right on, and it, that song not even touch or grip our soul anymore. And that's the tragedy. That would be the way an unbeliever handles the song, Holy, 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 and the truths of that song. We as believers should be captivated mesmerized, forced to pause and slow down. And maybe before I even sing another verse, let me th have I really understood what I just sang about my God? And how does this arrange my life in light of my present circumstances? That God is holy. Well, we return this morning to Psalm chapter 99 in a Message that I'm simply titling, Holy, Holy, Holy. Because holiness is the theme of the psalm. And because within the psalm, there are three different particular components of God's holiness that are on display. And again, I say what I said before. These three alone do not capture God's holiness. This whole book, page after page, is unveiling more and more of the holiness of God but we're just simply looking at the meditations of the inspired psalmist as the Spirit was bringing these truths to his heart and God was having them write them down for our good. Holy, holy, holy. Holiness is, or does seem to be, the Bible's favorite description of God. Not the only one, not the most important, but it is kind of an overarching attribute of God that the Bible is constantly referencing. When it speaks of his other attributes, his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, his love, his grace, it often coats it in, it's a holy righteousness, a, a holy justice, a holy mercy, a holy grace, a holy love. This attribute of holiness tells us more about God than, than anything else. 
And that's what makes it difficult to define, difficult to understand. We, we pray this prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I'll be honest, growing up, growing up on a ball field, man, that prayer was prayed before every game for years. And never once do I recall stopping in the middle of that prayer before the game begins. Let me think a little more deeply. What does it mean, hallowed be thy name, holy be thy name? I think one of the great tragedies of the church today is that we tend to give God's holiness a secondary meaning rather than really the, the primary biblical meaning that we see in Scripture. What I mean by that is this. We usually think of holiness and God's holiness in terms of his goodness, right? In terms of his morality, in terms of his purity. So let me illustrate it this way. This is how we tend to think of holiness. Uh, let's take, if we're measuring on a scale, a person's holiness. Uh, we might say that a terrorist, uh, they're 1% uh, holy. On a scale of 0 to 100, Let's, we'll, we'll give a little sign of 1. Um, a burglar, 10% holiness. The average person walking the street, uh, maybe 35% holy. Uh, maybe the average churchgoer, uh, maybe 40, 50% holy. Me, 60, right? Uh, some really well-known, let's, let's talk about Jonathan Edwards, let's talk about John Calvin, Martin Luther, let's talk about Billy Graham. You know, they might be up around 80, 85%, but nobody gets 100% except God alone. God is perfectly holy. And I think for a lot of people, that's the understanding of God's holiness. He is completely pure, completely right. Everything is perfect, and everyone else is on some kind of a, a, a declining scale from there. But that is a, not an adequate understanding of what God's holiness means. It's clear in the Bible that God's holiness is not so much an, uh, an ethical or a moral scale of his purity. That's a component of it, but biblically, that's not the primary understanding of God's holiness. If we are looking from Genesis to Revelation at God's holiness and how it is God, the script, God is revealing himself as holy, it speaks primarily to his otherness. His otherness. That God is different from everything else in creation. God is in a category all his own. He's not, he's not like us, just a little bit better. He, he, he is his own category. He is solitary in his glory. There's no one like him. There's no one who's even kind of like him. Listen, we are created in his image, the pinnacle of his creative genius. And yet he is something completely other than we are. Never mistake being created in God's image that we are like God. We are not. He is something altogether different, unique, one of a kind. Here's a big theolo theological, he's transcendent. He's beyond us, beyond our comprehension. If we're to categorize all of God's creation, you got human beings, you got animals, you got stuff. 
No matter how, how you narrow those categories down, there will never, ever be a category that you can put God into. He is his own category. And if this is all the categories of God's creative order on this side of the room, God is his own category on this side of the room. And if we speak of his transcendence, we mean that he is over all other categories. You simply cannot think about God in terms of how you think about anything else. You cannot love God the same way you love your family. That's why Jesus himself says you, you, you can't serve, you, you, your love for your family must also appear as hatred. Why? Because it's insufficient for a God who is completely other than your family, who's transcendent, who's incomparable than anyone or anything else. God's holiness, biblically, is his otherness. Now, part of that otherness a subcategory of that is his moral purity, which, again, I go back to is kind of how we tend to think of his. That's what we think of when we think of holiness. He is, he is pure. Yes, but not primarily. Primarily, he's completely something other, and as a subcategory of that otherness, he is pure. He is righteous. And... We can think, Scripture illustrates this for us, the otherness of holiness in various ways. In the Bible, sometimes a specific mountain will be referred to as a holy mountain. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that that's a morally pure mountain. It doesn't mean that that's a righteous mountain. It doesn't mean that's a loving mountain. It doesn't mean that that's a kind mountain or truthful mountain. It doesn't mean that's a forgiving mountain. What does it mean when... Scripture designates, let's say, Mount Sinai as a holy mountain. It means what? It's a unique mountain. All across the globe, there are mountain ranges, but this one is set apart as different. Illustratively, to illustrate holiness, it is something altogether different. You can tread on all these other mountains, but what did God say about Mount Sinai? You touch it, you die. You can tread up it. You can scale it by invitation only, my invitation. You come near, you drop dead. This mountain is something completely different. You can scale any other mountain you want to. But this holy mountain is unique. It's something altogether different. It's in a category all its own. Now, again, that's only illustrated. It's an illustration of holiness when it speaks of God's holiness. You can think about in the Old Testament, the priest put on a holy garment. Well, if you put a priest side by side next to somebody else, they didn't look that much different. Now, the priest's garment may be a little more uh, elaborate. It may be shine a little bit more. But by and large, you're looking at pretty much a tunic and maybe some, 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 some things to fancy it up a little bit. What made it so special? Nothing, except that God simply just designated it. This is a unique garment. This is a holy garment. It's something altogether unique and different from everything everybody else wears. And again, it's just illustrative. There was really nothing unique or special about it. It was a designation that was given to illustrate the otherness of holiness. 
And that kind of language, talking about a holy mountain or a holy garment or a holy vessel, is given to us really to help us to better understand what it means when God is defined as being holy. It is his otherness. And Psalm 99, which we've already read this morning, I think is very helpful to us because it identifies three components of God's otherness that are worthy of our meditation, of our quiet disposition, bringing our hearts before God and thinking in terms of who this God is. And I've already laid them out for you. The three components are his majesty, his righteousness, and his grace. Let's look at the first of these together in verses 1 through 3. God's holiness is defined by the inspired psalmist as being his majesty. Majesty, we could have used the word dignity. We could use the word greatness, grandeur, his authority, his stateliness. But we've gone with his majesty. Majesty is that which produces a sense of awe and wonder. Let's just stop right there. God's holiness is his majesty. God's holiness in the lives of his people produces a sense of awe and wonder. Listen, I'm convicted in my own heart when I ask this question, but let me just ask it anyway. When was the last time you experienced that? A sense of awe and wonder. We've got a lot of right truth about who God is up here, and we can talk about it, and we can tell people about it, and we can say all these fancy things. When was the last time you trembled under the weight of that thought of God's majesty, his otherness? Look at verses 1 through 3. God's otherness, the Lord reigns. Oh, there's other kings. There's other nations. The Lord reigns. Response, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. When we look at majesty, when we are aware we are in the presence of majesty, we are the natural reflex awestruck. We're amazed. When we are in the presence of majesty, no one has to tell you, stand up, or fall to your knees, or be amazed. When you're in the presence of majesty, you pause, you gaze, you are overwhelmed. You immediately feel small in the presence of such greatness. It would seem that in days gone by and centuries past, just to illustrate that picture, it's what people would often feel in the presence of royalty or presidents. That's not so much the case today. But in days gone by, they would refer to royalty or even presidents as your majesty. 
Here is someone who is greater than everyone else. Here is someone who transcends everyone else. Again, I just use that as a picture. That's what the psalmist here is saying about God. Here is one who transcends all other kings, all royalty, all other persons, all other nations. It would seem to me that living in the 21st century today, we have a real problem with majesty. We have a real problem with majesty. We have a problem with developing an awareness of it. We live in a day today of the critic. We'll take the greatest of all things and we will sneer at it. We'll look at something or someone who's worthy of respect and dignity and grandeur and we'll sneer, we'll critique. We'll make comedy. We'll pull greatness down to our level. Why? It's pride. It's our pride that wants to build ourselves up, puff ourselves up. I don't want something else to be in a place of sovereignty. I don't want something else to be in a place of authority. I don't want something, I want to be great. And the way I make myself feel great is if I can expose that greatness for being what it really is. I can expose some flaw in it. I can expose some weakness in it. I can expose they're not doing it or that's the way I would do it. We have a real problem with majesty today. I read an article, this goes back a couple months ago, but it struck me this week that in the 1900s, the nature of biography began to change. Prior to a man named Lighton Strachey, S-T-R-A-C-H-E-Y. I've never heard the name before. I read this in an article. Prior to that, biographies were written about individuals, presidents, royalty, great people. And it showed them to be great and admirable and wonderful. It showed their good qualities and their good achievements. Strachey brought in a new kind of biography. Strachey brought in one where, yeah, you would talk about the, the achievements of someone, but then you would also talk about their flaws and their faults and their weaknesses and those dirty little secrets. You expose these, you pulled greatness down to your level and in a biography, you walked away from somebody who you thought was great feeling like, well, they're nobody. They're nobody worthy of admiration. They're just like me. And biblically, on the one hand, no temptation has taken you, but such is as common to man. We understand that, that even in our, our heroes, their fallen heroes, we get that. But also, it, it's good for us to have heroes. It's good for us to have a model to look up to. Understanding Jesus is the ultimate hero. Jesus is the ultimate model. But I can't tell you, I have been helped by people like Robert Murray McShane. I've been helped by people like Jonathan Edwards. I've been helped by heroes like Calvin and Martin Luther. Not because they were perfect but because these were men who modeled and, and what, what I aspire for, what, what Christ has called me and us to live for. We need that. We need heroes. We need models. But what do we do today? We take greatness and we, we, we bring it down to our level. We expose it. And then people, what, get intoxicated with their own greatness. I've exposed this person, this leader, this royalty, this leader, this family, this whatever. I've exposed that to be not what everybody thinks it is. 
because I'm what should be. Do you see that? And that's damaging for us as Christians when it comes to admiring the holiness of God. In this kind of a toxic atmosphere, where we cannot look upon greatness and admire it and appreciate it and thank God for it, even in the midst of flaws, it's there we lose our sense of the majesty of God because we do the same thing to Him. We pull God down to our own level. And so we'll sing a song like of God's holiness, of his otherness, and not even flinch. So how do we recapture it? Praise God, the psalmist demonstrates it can be recaptured, that sense of wonder, it, by returning to your God. Through repentance, which again, we continue to drive home, is person-oriented. I have sinned against this God by bringing him down to a level that he is unworthy of. I need to return to a right view of God, a right thinking about God, of his otherness, of his uniqueness, of his grandeur, of his majesty, that there's nothing like him. He's not in a category with anything else. He is his own category. He's solitary in his greatness and glory and sovereignty and wonder, and I return to him. And it's not unlike when I take, when our boys, when we've gone to Disney World, They've been a number of times now, thanks to the grandparents. <laughs> and there can be a sense where oh, we've been before. But then they get there and they stand in front of the castle. The colors, the music, the smell. And immediately, my 12-year-old who's too cool to show any kind of emotion all of a sudden becomes like a child again. Look at it. It's not unlike for you as adults. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, I've not been. But here's the experience I'm, I'm told. You go, you stand there, your jaw just drops at the amount of water that is just flowing. Millions and millions and tons of water just cascading over the falls day and night, year after year after year. You just cannot help but feel your smallness against the backdrop of such greatness. The Alps, those snow-covered mountains, you can't help but feel tiny and to be awestruck when you're standing in the presence of those mighty grand mountaintops. Maybe it's looking at a baby. The intricacy, the detail of uh, what began in the womb of a mother and developed into this, this human being now you hold just minutes old, quivering and trembling, filled with wonder. If you can go stand before the Alps or Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or hold a newborn baby in your hand and you shrug your shoulders, you are dead. Am I wrong? Well, how in the world can we acknowledge the holiness of God and yawn? I'm guilty of it. How can we Acknowledge the otherness of God and not even sing, not even acknowledge. If you can do that, you're dead, spiritually dead. 
The psalmist here says, the natural reflex of the soul who sees God in his otherness is, let them tremble. Don't stop it. It's going to happen. They're going to tremble. Let them tremble. He is exalted. He is completely other. Everything else dwarfs all of our problems. Health problems, financial problems, family problems, all of it dwarfs. And I, that, please don't hear me minimizing your struggles in life. They are huge. But, but in light of his holiness, they are dwarfed. They're brought to, exposed to be nothing before the majesty of God. And that's who we are forgetting today. Even when we gather together on a Sunday morning like this, and we've had a lineup of songs about the holiness of God, about God's majesty, about his righteousness, about his grace. And yet we can barely sit through it. And I can barely get through it up here. I'm the one doing it. Without a, a flutter of the heart in worship of God. This psalm brings us back to the majesty of God. J.B. Phillips years ago, just in a book, wrote, Your God is too small. And that is the diagnosis of the church today. This church and every church. You simply could not have a view of God that's too high. Therefore, your view of God is always too low. And in most instances, woefully, inadequately too low. Too many people can gather together to worship God, to pray to God, and go through the motions and not be moved by it. That's why we try to at least cultivate that when we begin our prayer meeting. You take a few moments in the quiet of the room. Understand, you're about to go into the presence of God with nobody else talking. You make sure your heart is ready. It's a small thing, and only God knows how you use that time and how I use that time. But that's the idea behind it, is understanding you're going into the presence of majesty where the angels fall down over and over again. If we can rush into his presence in prayer and in worship and sing these songs without a thought, our view of God is woefully too low. The second thing, his righteousness. Verses 4 and 5. Psalm 99, verse 4 and 5. The king in his might loves justice. You've established equity. <clears throat> You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. This is where the comparisons with uh, Niagara Falls and the Alps and Disney World and holding the baby, this is where those comparisons break down. Because there we're certainly talking about God's majesty, his otherness, his, his grandeur. Supreme over all things. But here in verses 4 and 5, here's another aspect of his holiness. It's still his otherness. That God who is transcendent like that is also personal. Uh, the Alps are not personal. The Grand Canyon never calls you by name. But here the holiness of God is that he's one who defines what is right in the lives of his people. 
He defines what's right. And he's, whatever he says is right, whatever he ordains is right. Even if it's not what you would choose for your life or what I would choose for my life, the heartache, the struggle, the suffering, the pain, the surgeries, the deaths, the premature deaths, all these things we look at and, and, and we want, want to shake our fist at God and say, what, how dare you, how would you? He is holy. And all that he ordains is right because he is righteous. It is his nature. Now, we could sit back and say, yeah, I know God is righteous. Yes, that's right. Everything he's done is right. But if we're honest, we do struggle with that. You might be in a season of life right now. You're looking at your experience, your health, your finances, your family, your job situation. And I'm going to challenge you on this, Jake, that everything God does is right. Because let me list out for you what God has done to me this year. Boom, 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 boom. That's just like in this first century and all throughout ancient history. Deities were not righteous. Uh, the Hindu gods, the, the Buddhist gods, the, the pagan gods, uh, they were not righteous. They were, in fact, they weren't moral at all. They were immoral. They were unrighteous. They were treacherous. They would, they would require, these false gods of the past would require horrendous things, sacrifices of, of virgins and different things. They were not righteous deities. And to the ancient world, this revelation that the God of the Bible is righteous, that would have been shocking. Just like for maybe you this morning. You're looking at your present experiences, and you're hearing me say God is righteous, and you're like, you're shocked by it. Look what the psalmist says. You have established equity, verse 4. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. In Jacob, they're talking about the nation of Israel. Israel was meant to be a, a pilot plant, if you will. A, a, a pilot plant to the world, a little colony of heaven on earth. God gave his law to Israel and said, Israel, I'm your God, you're my people, and you are to, to image to the rest of the world what a relationship with me is like. God put his people in a little plot of land in the Middle East and says, I'm your God, here's how you're to live, be honest, be kind, be compassionate, because I am honest and kind and compassionate. I want you to love truth because I love truth. I want you to honor things that are honorable because I honor things that are honorable. But Israel failed. They failed their mission. And then the New Testament tells us, Paul tells us, that now the church is the new Israel. The church is the one called by God to live and to show to the world, the people, here's who God is and here's what life lived unto God is all about. But is that how we live? I would suggest to you that for well over the last hundred years or so, as churches, as Christians have departed from a biblical view of God, departed from a biblical understanding of the authority of God's word over their lives, we're living in a nation now that's destroying itself. And we can point to all kinds of things outside the church, but we cannot mistake the fact that within the walls of the church, it's our departure from God and his word and his majesty and life lived unto him 
that things are the way they are. The Bible tells us God is righteous and true and just. And the great struggle here for you and I in God's holiness is our experience may dictate to us something else. God, you're unrighteous to do this to me again. It's not fair. I don't understand. With no disrespect, God is holy. You're not. I'm not. He is in a category all his own. And everything that he does is equity. He executes justice. It is always right. He cannot be otherwise. And when we go through hardships and struggles, it's not because he's unrighteous. It's because in his holiness, he has a purpose. And his ways are not our ways. He is completely other. His otherness, his holiness, his holy ways are not like our ways, nor should we expect them to be. Don't ever sit back and try to think back, connect the dots prior to God uh, God's execution of it. Here's what I think God is doing. You can't do it. He's other. In fact, it'll probably be in, in eternity as we're worshiping God in his holiness that we will be able to look back and say, I never would have seen it. And God, I fall down and beg your forgiveness. His righteousness. Thirdly, God's holiness means Grace. Grace. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. We talked about in the previous one. Part of God's holy, his otherness, but he's also personal. And here at this passage, there's a couple things where he, he just reveals in the midst of his holiness, he's also merciful. Going back up to verse 1, the Lord reigns. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Well, where are the cherubim? What's he talking about there? The mercy seat. There are the, the two golden statues placed above the place where blood was offered for forgiveness where mercy was to be found. Our holy God sits on a seat of mercy. He's other, he's, all, he's transcendent, but he's simultaneously imminent. And he sits on a seat of mercy. Also in verse 5, there was a, a clue there. Worship at his footstool. That was a common description of the Ark of the Covenant. Where's the Ark of the Covenant? It's in the Holy of Holies, the place where mercy is found, the place where blood sacrifice is made for the forgiveness of sins. And then much more specifically, in the passage we just read, this holy God, who's also on a mercy seat, answers the prayers of his people. Verse 6 they called to the Lord and he answered them. He's talking about Moses and Aaron and Samuel. He says, they called to the Lord and this holy God, he answered them. Yes, he's majestic and righteous. But when his people cry to him, he answers. 
More than that, in verse 7, this holy God speaks to them and guides them. The psalmist goes on, in the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. Day by day, this holy God who is other, who is supreme, who is righteous, is also personally leading them through the wilderness, leading his people, showing great kindness, showering them with mercy. He's providing for them. But don't mistake his kindness and his mercy for weakness. This is where we get into trouble sometimes. God's kindness, God's mercy, God's grace, we kind of begin to water him down a little bit. Oh, don't think for a second that his mercy negates his righteousness or his wrath or that he's now indifferent to sin. Verse 8, you were an avenger of their wrongdoings. He led his people, he guided them. Oh, but when those people sinned against this holy other God who is righteous, oh, he poured out his justice. What happened when Moses sinned against this holy God? He was excluded from the promised land, not allowed to go in. He suffered for his sin. When we talk about the holiness of God and his majesty and his righteousness and his grace, These things are not at war with one another, righteousness and grace. Grace and justice, they're not not at odds with one another. It's not you have to have one and you can't be the other. He has simultaneously these things. He is kind and merciful and, and guiding and listening to his people beyond measure. But as we've seen in the book of Revelation, woe to you who sin against this God. Woe to you who presume on his grace. It's one of the great realities of the church today. God is gracious. Nobody's perfect. He's going to let me just get by with what I do. No. He is holy. The psalmist also says in verse 8, you were a forgiving God to them. An avenger of their wrongdoings, but simultaneously a forgiving God. And here is the gospel. Here is the gospel. This holy God who cannot forgive sin has made a way to forgive sin. A way for sinners to be pardoned. And the psalmist tells us how. Verse 8, you were a forgiving God. The Hebrew literally there means you are a sin-bearing God. This is how he can be a God who cannot let sin go, but will also let sin go. You were a forgiving God, better translated, you were a sin-bearing God. And this is the wonder of the gospel. This is the otherness of God. How in the world? Because this side of otherness where we are, it is incompatible for one to be, I cannot let sin go and I will let sin go. Right? Those things are not compatible. You either one or the other. But in this completely transcendent other God in a category all his own, I'm a holy God who will avenge all wrongdoing, yet at the same time, I am a God who is forgiving to them. How? How, God, in your holiness... Is that even possible? 
and we look at passages like Isaiah 53. God himself bore the sin of the sinner. God himself bore the sin, took the iniquity upon himself in Jesus Christ, took it upon himself. This is the otherness of God. This is the the grace of God that that causes us to to fall down before him, that causes us to, in wonder, to say, how is this possible? A God who cannot forgive took my sin upon himself so that he can forgive. The Lord laid upon himself in Christ the iniquity of us all. And that's the wonder, the otherness, the holiness of the gospel. It makes no sense. If you sit back and you think, man, I can tell you the gospel backwards and forwards, we need to have a cursory understanding. But if you sit back and and you're comfortable with your understanding of it, you have a wrong understanding of the gospel. It makes no sense whatsoever. And it shouldn't because it's a holy gospel that belongs in the mind of our holy God. Only he could come up with it. It's a majestic gospel because he's a majestic God. It's a righteous gospel because he's a righteous God. And it's a gracious gospel because he is a gracious God. And all of these things are his holiness. And all we've done is scratch the surface. When the psalmist meditated upon the majesty of God, holy is he. When he meditated upon the righteousness of God, holy is he. And then there was a shift. When he meditated upon the grace of God in verses 6 through 9. The Lord, our God, is holy. The Lord, our God, that sin-bearing God. No one could have imagined this. A holy God who is infinitely pure and despite, he bore our sin. He sits enthroned between the cherubim on the mercy seat. And the one who's there is majesty. And the one who is there is righteous. But oh, praise God, he's also gracious in a way that no one could fathom, in a way that nobody could create, in a way that's unique to God Oh, if we're able to speak today and talk about and sing about the holiness of God and not tremble or not be moved. There's something terribly wrong in here. Were you able to sing that way? Confess it to the Lord. Repent. Repent of your unholy view of God. And return to this holy view of God. And this is, we've only scratched the surface. surface. Return, oh God, forgive me, my view of you. I've, I've been like that prideful sneerer who takes people and I just pull them down. I mean, no one's too good for me. No one's greater than me. I'm going to, exp- I've done that to you, God. Forgive me. I return you to your place of preeminence. I fall down before you your majesty, your righteousness, the holiness of your grace and your holy gospel. And if you're here this morning and you do feel the weight of God's holiness, then just ask God continue to keep your hand upon me because it is easy to drift. Thank you, God, for your grace and mercy. 
and let me give you the worship you're worthy of.